Hi, I'm Tobin Moore, and um, this is my testimony. Growing up as a kid in, in South Bend, Indiana, um, it was a largely Catholic uh, community. Um, Notre Dame University, everybody around there was Catholic, so um, I grew up in a house that um, really wasn't involved in church, didn't go to church. I found myself uh, attending uh, Catholic church with my friends on some Sundays. Uh, I'd be sitting around with nothing to do, so hey, I'll tag along to, to church with you guys. Um, the Catholic church experience for me was somewhat awkward and uncomfortable. Um, and it seemed like there was always so, so many rules, and I just wasn't really sure if I fit into that. Um, like I said, I, I'd go because my friends were going, and, and other than that, I, I didn't really excite me a whole lot. We moved to Cincinnati, and, and by this time we had uh, a, a young son, and, and so again, we decided we were going to try out some churches around the area and get involved. And, and um, our neighbor was uh, new to the area, and, and, and they were trying out new churches, and they said, hey, why don't you, uh, we tried this place Four Corners, it's over at uh, Lakota West High School. Why don't you try it out? And I said, okay, yeah, we'll, we'll try that out. And, and so we went again off and on. And, you know, I'd say I remember is like 2008, I believe. Um, we were always kind of back row kind of people. And um, we'd listen to the message, but, um, you know, we'd go home Sundays and, and not really carry it out during the week. But there was a Sunday we came and it was uh, Road Trip Sunday. It was a, advertised as a special big day uh, for the church. And, um, you know, I'm kind of nervous. I'm in the back, you know, and 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 Ben announces that, uh, hey, everybody's gonna get up and go to somebody's house for lunch, and 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 me uh, being, you know, the way I am, I was somewhat uncomfortable, and thought, man, that's that's crazy. Uh, you know, I think I'm gonna just take off. You know, it doesn't sound like something that I really want to do. Go hang out with some people that I don't know and have lunch, and. And anyway, something kind of pressed into me, and and we looked. My wife looked at each other, and we said, "Hey, let's let's try it." I don't know what it was, but we said, "Let's let's do this." And so we kind of picked the house we were going to. Had no idea where we were going. Um, it was extremely uh, nervous feeling for me going over to somebody's house that we don't even know, and we're going to hear about religion and talk about things that maybe I wasn't comfortable in talking about, and. Um, we roll up and, and I, I see this guy come down the driveway and, and it was a familiar face. Um, it was Tom Barone's house and, and Tom Barone went to Purdue with me and um, he was a guidance counselor uh, in my dorm when I was going there and I was like, wow, why well, I, I know this guy, you know? And, and all of a sudden it just became a real comfortable experience. Um, I don't know if that was God thing bringing me into a place with, um, you know, trying to make me comfortable in a, in a, in a setting that I was uncomfortable in. Um, I just continue to get more and more plugged in with, with Four Corners and as long, you know, the more I get plugged in with Four Corners, the more um, I feel like it's not just Sunday anymore, it's it's my life, it's, it's every day, um, you know, welcoming Jesus into my life and, 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 and letting Him walk with me and lead me in a way that, you know, I, I just never thought would be possible so a couple weeks ago uh, I got baptized and uh, it was just an awesome 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 experience and uh, I'm so happy to have uh, had this opportunity and, and been blessed to, to, to lead this life and, and get to know uh, 
folks at Four Corners and, and get to know Jesus. It's been awesome. Thanks. never gets old to me. Uh, We're going to do exactly what you just saw Tobin do at the end of this message today. We're going to have a baptism time. Let me me tell you what this is like. Now, some of you are newer here. You don't know that my wife is Jill. Now, you saw her probably out in the lobby when you came in. She was the pretty one. Uh, That's my wife. And um, and, and if if, if I were married to Jill, but I didn't want to tell anybody I was married to Jill, I didn't want you to know anything about Jill, well, she wouldn't feel very good about that if I were ashamed of that. So what the Lord has done for us is he says, look, if you're connected to me, I've given you this great ceremony called baptism where you get to go public with your faith and tell everybody that you and I are connected, that I'm dedicated to you, you're committed to me, and we're, we're a thing, we're an item now. And so we're really excited about that. And, you know, Tobin kind of shared his story there. And you're going to see, I don't know, seven or eight people uh, get baptized uh, at the end of the message today. And around here, when that happens, it's a party. It's a celebration for us. And so when they come up out of the water, they go down representing they're dying to themselves. They come up alive in Christ. The first sound they hear are those of us in this crowd celebrating with them. And around here, we know that when you celebrate, you clap your hands. It's not the only way you can, but we clap for them. We cheer for them. We yell. We scream. We, we blow horns, uh, fireworks, the whole bit. Uh, we, do all, we do all that here. And, and we want them to know how proud we are of them. They are our brother and our sister. And God is committed to them and they're committed uh, to him as well. So we're really excited about that. And by the way, if you have made an adult decision to follow Jesus and you haven't yet been baptized, you understand that the scripture says there's nothing more you need to do. You're prepared. You're qualified. Now, I know all kinds of church religions try to tack on different things you have to do to be baptized, but in the Bible, it was clear. You believe in Jesus, you get baptized and you start your journey with him. You don't have to qualify for anything else just like you don't have to qualify for anything else in salvation. You just receive the gift he gave and then you start walking with him and he'll work with you and grow you up. So if you're ready and you didn't come ready today, you can, as we start to sing at the end of the message, you can stand up with us and you can make your way down the aisle and you can grab some clothes, go into the bathrooms and change. We have, those, we have some people that will help you. Well, well, they won't help you change clothes. They'll help you. That would be a weird thing. They'll help you pick out some clothes and you can change on your own and then you can come back in here and kind of stand over again the wall as we get ready to baptize the people that came prepared to do that. Almost every time we offer baptism, we have somebody uh, do that because they realize, you know what? God loves me. He's accepted me. And I just want to walk with him. And I don't need anybody else to approve that. And so anyway, we're we're, we're glad to do that. Today, I'm going to tell you a story about Jonah in the Bible. I love this story. A lot of you grew up in church. You kind of know the story of Jonah. Jonah doesn't follow God. He gets on a boat going the wrong direction. Fish swallows him. And then uh, he repents and he's all good, right? Well, that's kind of the story of Jonah. It doesn't take long to tell, but do you know that there's another chapter in Jonah? After you get chapter one where he's given the call to go and he goes in the wrong direction, after chapter two where he prays while he's inside the fish, and after chapter three where he finally goes and does what God tells him to do, there's chapter four. And in chapter four, the real meat of the story comes clear to us. The whole point of what God's trying to say to us today, the whole reason that book is included in the Bible, the whole reason God moved on Jonah to write down his story, and the whole reason it was preserved over the centuries was so that you and I could learn from the meat of chapter four. So I want you, if you have your Bibles with you, to go to Jonah chapter four, and uh, or chapter one. We can start there, and then we'll flip over the pages to chapter four in just a few minutes. I want you to get there with me, and I want us to start talking about this guy named Jonah. I think you're going to absolutely love his story. 
Let me tell you a little bit about him kind of to get rolling. Jonah was a prophet about 780 years before Jesus lived on this earth. So that puts him, you know, some 2,780 years from now back. And he lived and worked in the town of Judea and in Israel, that little split nation there right on the Mediterranean Sea. And he also worked around the time of the prophet Amos and Hosea. These are folks in your Bible. They were contemporaries with each other. And what a prophet did was they would receive words from God and they would tell them to people. Sometimes those words would be like, here's what God wants you to know. And sometimes those words would be, here's what's going to happen. And sometimes those words would be encouraging words, shedding light on God's heart for a situation. That was the role of a prophet. And these people had, well, they had elevated position in the society. People acknowledged that God would speak through people and people, when the prophet would speak, would often, they would listen and heed, receive what the prophet had to say. This was Jonah's station in life. It was a pretty good station in life, except this particular time, God's going to call Jonah to do something that he didn't particularly want to do. We'll pick up his story right here in chapter 1, verse 1. Here's what it says. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. Now, if you're a prophet, you like getting the words from God that say, now go tell somebody the good news. Go tell them that they're getting ready to give birth. Go tell them they're getting ready to come into some money. Go tell them that some, their crops are going to grow. You don't really particularly like getting the go preach against something. So that's kind of strike one in Jonah's story here in his situation. But really, the real challenge comes not about the message. Prophets often give hard messages. The real challenge comes with the audience who was supposed to receive the message. God tells Jonah, go to the Ninevites. Now, the city of Nineveh, where the Ninevites are, is the capital city of the nation of Assyria. Now, the Assyrians, they're bad dudes. The Bible talks about these guys. We have ancient um, archaeology or current archaeology about ancient times that tells us all about these guys. They were, they, were, they were tough. They had long spears. They had sharp swords. They liked to pillage villages. They liked to rape the women and take the goods. They were tough. They were mean. And they were just to the north of the little country of Israel, Judah, all right? Just to the north of them. It'd be just like, you know, the Michiganders here in the room. Uh, you know how we can't stand you guys. It's just, just, just like that. I mean, they were kind of like you know, bitter, bitter rivals. It, it was rough. Now, just to the south of Israel, Judah is Egypt, to the east is the Mediterranean Sea, and to the west is the desert. Now, if you want to get from Egypt, where there's a lot of goods and wisdom and knowledge, and they're a major power player in the world, and you want to get to Assyria, kind of like the next big major power player, you've got to pass down the road. You don't go necessarily through the water. You don't go through the desert, of course. You go right along the coast where Israel, Judah are. And so because of all the, the craziness that happened between Egypt and Assyria and any other power Israel was, particularly situated to receive all the craziness of those dynamics, of the warring and the trading and the goofiness that would happen between those nations. And because of that, the Israelites didn't particularly care for the Assyrians. They were mean and vicious. They were often being uh, raided by the Assyrian army. And so they didn't have very good feelings about them. And so when God comes to Jonah and says, go to the Ninevites, his first thought was, I don't like those people. They're not very nice. They're, they're wicked. They're mean. They're crazy. And God says, I want you to go to them anyway because they're evil. And Jonah says, yeah, no, duh, they're evil. This is, uh, everybody knows they're evil. This is, this is no surprise. And so what do you want me to go say to them? And so Jonah, rather than going and telling them that God is coming against them, that God has a bad word to give them, that they're evil, the Bible says that Jonah does just the opposite. In verse 3 of chapter 1, we're not 
very far into the story, we find Jonah the prophet who knows about God, understands God's character, disobeying God. And here's what the Bible tells us. Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. Now, now let me help you here. So here I'm Jonah, and I'm in the little land of Israel, Judah. And up here is Michigan or Assyria. And way over to the east, like across the Mediterranean Sea, over in Spain is Tarshish. That's where Jonah heads out for. He wants to get as far away from possible uh, from, from the commission that God has given him and from going north to the city of Nineveh. And the Bible says in chapter 3, he went to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port over on the far eastern side. And after paying the fare, he went aboard and he sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Now, here's the first time where I get a little insight into this guy, Jonah. See, Jonah knows about God. He's been around the stuff of God. He has friends, you know. He, he's hanging out with church folk, Amos and Hosea. He gets it. He, he grew up in the thing, you could imagine. He, he's, he's skilled. He's knowledgeable. And yet, he has this crazy idea that when he wants to, he can just run away from God. He just feels like, hey, I can go in my own direction. He decides, he makes up his mind that even though God is God, I can run away from him. Now, what you're going to define or what you're going to find in this guy, Jonah, is something very peculiar. And at first, if you read the book like the first time, it only takes you 20 minutes to read all four chapters. That's why we're calling it a Twitter money. It's one of the shortest books in the Bible. It's kind of fun that way. So if you have to do a report on one, pick Jonah. It's easier. All right. Um, that's how I got interested in seminary. It was the easiest one. And anyway, uh, when, you, when you read the story, what you find is, is that you first start thinking this guy is an idiot. And you also find that there's a lot of humor in this book. Everything in the book of Jonah is written large. It's the great city of Nineveh. It's the great prophet Jonah. It's the great big God and a great big boat and a great big storm and a great big fish. It's all great. Everything's grand here. But the other thing that becomes apparent is that Jonah, while he should know better, often doesn't do what he knows to do. And then when you find yourself reading the book, you start going, what an idiot this guy is. Until you realize that God gave us his story, his testimony, this shortened, abbreviated story, this Twitter money, so that we could learn from it. And when I, when I read this book, I do, of course, hear the story of Jonah, and I find myself laughing at him at his expense, but pretty soon I realize I'm looking in a mirror. I've, I've never run off to Tarshish. I wasn't in a boat, and I haven't been swallowed by a fish. But I know exactly what he's going through here, where he, where, where he had a sense that God wanted him to do something, and he didn't really want to do it. Let me ask you, anybody else in the room be honest enough with me and say, you know exactly what that's like? You kind of think you know what God like you to do, and yet the idea of you actually pressing into it and what it's going to cost you personally isn't the most pleasurable thought in the world to you? And God wants you to forgive somebody that's hard to forgive? God wants you to press again into a marriage situation and offer grace where you know you're right and you know that ultimately she's wrong in my situation. Of course, it's always Jill's fault. And uh, I only stay with her because she's so beautiful. Honestly, that's, that's the whole reason. I'm joking, of course. Those who know me know that I'm a liar as well. Um, she is very beautiful, but I'm the one that's always wrong. And so, and she reminds me of that very often. I'm going to stop. All right. Um, but Jonah is the guy who is unique in the story, but he's not unique in humanity. He is us. He, his story is our story. People who have a good enough sense of God. I mean, the truth is, as everybody in this room, you know enough about God already. And very few of us are living up to the full obedience of what we already understand. Oh, most of us could learn more, but most of us aren't living up to full obedience of what we already understand. This is Jonah. And he sets out to go in the other direction. And the Bible says that he doesn't just do this. He finds himself in the bottom of the boat asleep. Now, look, 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 look at this. He doesn't just want to run away from God. He turns his back on everything else. And he goes to sleep in the bottom of the boat. 
God's not done with him, though. This is a story of great redemption. God's not done with him. As much as he wants to run away, as much as he wants to forget what's going on, as much as he wants to close his eyes to God's stuff, God says, I'm not done. So God sends a storm right at the epicenter of which is right over top of that boat in that Mediterranean Sea. Jonah's asleep. And the other sailors who don't know anything about the God of Jonah, they start crying out to their gods and they start trying to figure out this is a strange storm. And they know all about seafaring. They know all about managing boats in the middle of the storms. And yet this one is strange and peculiar. And they start getting a sense that something supernatural is going on. And they're right. So they start calling on their individual gods. Somebody runs down to the bottom of the boat, wakes up Jonah and says, you need to get up and pray to whatever God you follow. And Jonah's kind of quiet for a minute, acts like he doesn't know what's going on. But deep down, he knows that God's out to get him. God's chasing him down. He can run, but he can't hide from God. So finally, Jonah raises his hand and says, hey, I'm the one. If you guys will throw me overboard, uh, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Now, this is where it gets funny. See, I learned in seminary that God was omnipotent, omniscient. I learned all kinds of wonderful big words about God. Nobody ever told me that God had a sense of humor, though. And what you're going to find out right here is that this is the funniest book in the Bible. Because what happens here is some sailors that don't know anything about Jehovah, they don't know anything about God, they say to Jonah, these are just sailors, they cuss, they gamble, I'm sure they sleep with women when they're informing, you know, you know, it's the idea of the sailor. They say to Jonah, we could never throw you in the ocean. We have too much compassion for that. And here's Jonah on the lamb, he's running away from God, and he's like, no, 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 just throw me in. And so they kind of switch places. And these sailors call on the God of the Old Testament, Jehovah, they throw Jonah over reluctantly. They don't want to do it. And the calm comes to the water. Jonah begins to fall down. The Bible describes that as he falls, he writes this poem. In Jonah chapter 2, he says, it's like seaweed wraps around my neck. I'm falling to the bottom. And then he says, but God, you saved me. I mean, God's got his attention. And the Bible says that God sends a big fish and swallows Jonah. Now, friends, you're having a bad day if you're asleep on a boat and it's storming. You're having a bad day when you're thrown overboard into a raging sea. But the day is really bad. When a fish comes and swallows you up, that's a bad day. But that's not how Jonah saw it. His heart is beginning to soften. And he says, God, I could have drowned there with the seaweed wrapped around my neck because I'm dropping further and further into the depths. But you saved me by your grace. And he has three days to think about his situation. It's dark. I bet it stinks. You ever been around like rotting fish? Oh my goodness, isn't that a terrible smell? I don't know what it was, but it wasn't a pleasant situation. And he begins to get introspective. Uh, things aren't exactly the way he'd like them to be. And he starts thinking about God. Do you see why I say, friends, this is Jonah's story, but it's not just Jonah's story. I wonder if there's anybody else in the room that'd be just honest enough to say your testimony, your story of God is, is that you turned to him when things weren't always going the way you'd like them to go. That, that you had a softer spot in your heart for the things of God as things were kind of rough for you. See, that's normal. And our God is good to us, and so he allows that. In fact, he'll orchestrate some things into your life called storms. He'll bring fish into your life. That's what the Bible tells us. God brought the storm. God brought the fish into Jonah's life to teach Jonah something. So after three days of thought, Jonah has this thought. It's a powerful thought. It really is one of the summary ideas in the book. And it's found right in the middle. And Jonah's going to say these words. And then God's going to teach him how important and true these words are. So from the belly of the fish, day three, here's what the Bible says in Jonah chapter two, verse eight. Jonah's had time to think and reflect. And he says, listen to this. Those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Now, an idol was a 
figurine that was made to be worshipped in place of the real God. People would craft things from their goods, from things that were valuable to them, and then they would worship that thing as a visible image of some invisible God. And the, the Hebrew people weren't allowed to do this. This was against the rules. God cannot be put into a box that way. He can't be fashioned that way. You can't serve the creation. No, God calls us to serve the creator. Jonah realizes that if you put your faith and trust in idols, if you make things that aren't God like God, if you take things that don't have eternal value and you make them seem in your life they're like they're the most important thing to you, then you begin to forfeit the grace that could be yours. That's good teaching right there. I could spend the whole week right here. Now, I'm not going to. A better preacher might. But I want to show you something here. See, I think that there are people all around us, and I bet some of us in this room, I know it's true for me, that I've elevated things that aren't eternally significant, that aren't at the top of God's priority list, and I've made them more important to me than than they were ever meant to be. I've made them sometimes even more important than God. And the truth of the matter is, is that God comes to us and wants us to remind us that we're not him, that his values are the right values, that ours need to align up to his. And when our values don't line up with God's values, it causes conflict and confusion and chaos and storms in our life. And the way he wants to walk with us, that gracious, loving, compassionate God, we actually begin to pull away from that. We don't get to experience all the benefits of walking with our loving creator. That's good preaching, Ben, right there. That's, that's good. That's, that, that's exactly what God wanted Jonah to learn, but of course that doesn't need to touch my life. I, I hope the person next to me gets it. I, I, I think maybe somebody's saying in the room, but God wanted Jonah to know that that was exactly for him. So what is going to happen now is Jonah finally, the Bible says, God causes the fish to vomit him up on the ground. Isn't that a beautiful sight? Here's this prophet is a position of honor and he's covered in, in fish slime laying on a beach somewhere and he gets up and he's, oh, guess what I'm going to do? I'm gonna, now going to go to Nineveh. I'm, I'm going to go now. Uh, no, duh. So he starts to make his way to Nineveh. He goes north, wherever that is. And he goes and he gives the shortest message that's ever been given, much shorter than the one I'm giving today. He, he gives a five-word message in the Hebrew. In, in Hebrew, it says, <laughs> 40 days is Nineveh destroyed. 40 days is Nineveh destroyed. In English, we'd say, in 40 days, God's going to kick your tail because you guys aren't nice. 40 days is Nineveh destroyed. And he walks through the city saying this. And the Bible says it takes quite a bit of time to get through the great city of Nineveh. But wherever he goes, he says, 40 days is Nineveh destroyed. And irony of all ironies, the Ninevites who rape and pillage in little small villages and take goods and uh, they hear his words. The king finds out about it. And from the king to the lowest servant, they put on sackcloth as a sign of repentance. They're going to turn away from their evil ways and turn towards the God behind the message 40 days is Nineveh destroyed. They pray. They put on sackcloth and ashes. From the king to the lowest servant, even the cattle, even the cattle. So the entire society turns towards God. Now, you would think this was a red-letter day. I mean, if I were Jonah right here and I were writing my resume, this is where I'd talk about how good I am. You guys know how to write a resume, right? You take all your weaknesses and you make them into strengths. Like I remember one time I had to tell somebody what was my biggest weakness. And I, of course, said I work too much. I'm, I'm such a diligent worker and I'm so on time and focused. Sometimes it, it, I have extra stress about how diligent and how, and they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how that works. Well, if I were Jonah here, here's what I would say. I'm such a powerful preacher. In five words, almost a half a million people turn towards God. It's a powerful thing. But Jonah doesn't do that. What should be a red letter day, what should be a banner day for Jonah becomes a problematic experience. 
And it leads us right up to Jonah chapter 4 where the real meat and what God's really trying to teach this guy in his story becomes clear to us. And this is where the hilarious nature, the humor of God becomes clear. Jonah chapter 4 verse 1 finally, here's what it says. When the Ninevites repented, turned towards God, Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. God is omnipotent, he's omniscient, and he's also hilarious. When it says Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry, the Hebrew uses a word there to depict fire. Jonah is on fire. His veins are popping from his neck. His fists are closed. His teeth are clenching. And he's angry because the Ninevites have turned. He's hot. He's angry. He's violent. He's shaking. He continues to believe that somehow he's in charge and what he wants to have happen should happen. It's like he's sitting on the throne and God is his butler. And God should do what he tells him to do. And God's going to teach Jonah that's not the way the universe runs. So in verse 2, he prays to the Lord. Oh, Lord, he says. Now, this isn't the oh, Lord of the humble prayer. Oh, Lord, help me. It's not that. Uh, this is more like your dad when he hits his thumb with a hammer when you were a kid. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, it's that kind of angry, angriness. And then he says, look, look, look at this. Is this not what I said when I was still at home? Now, see, some of us thought that Jonah ran because it just wasn't, you know, pleasant for him. He, he, he just simply didn't want to do what God called him to do. It runs deeper. We're going to get his heart exposed here. And God's going to give us a message for this church from this book, this experience that's almost 3,000 years old. Is this not what I said when I was still at home, Jonah says? I'm still at home. Let's think about that for a minute. Before you ruin my life. Before I was hassled by you, before you grabbed hold of me and wouldn't let go, when I was at home sitting there watching my television, sitting in my underwear watching March Madness, eating foods that end in Edo's, wasn't, wasn't I better off before you messed with me? That's why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. I knew that you were, now listen to these words, and he begins to quote from Exodus, the character of God. I knew you were a gracious and compassionate God. That sounds like a good thing to me, but not here for Jonah. Slow to anger and abounding in love. God who relents from sending calamity. He says, in effect, if I knew you were going to do this, in fact, I did know you were going to redo this. That's why I ran away from you. I'm quoting back your character to you to let you know that really the reason I ran is your fault. I knew if I went and told them what you told me to tell them, they would repent. And I didn't want those ugly Ninevites to repent. I don't like them, God. In fact, I hate them. They're terrible people. They're all kid rock fans. They wear dark pants and white socks and tank tops and have mullets. And I can't stand people like that. I don't know what he said about them. I mean, you pick your favorite artist. You know, but, but there was something about the Ninevites, and he didn't want those people in his life. I knew you were going to call them sons, and if you, God, call them sons, I got to call them brothers. And if they repent and are forgiven, I knew I'd have to accept them into the fold of my life. And I knew that they, if they repented, they'd go to heaven, and then I'd have to spend all eternity with them. I knew you would love them, and I don't even like them. And here I am, a prophet, but I don't even feel like a prophet anymore. I feel like a victim, God. I knew you were just like this. Oh, my goodness. Jonah is having a conflict. And his, his like, little boy inside of him, his, like, inside little kid, hadn't grown up yet. 
He's struggling with what God wants versus what he wants. And as he sees the world versus how God sees the world. And God is going to take him on a journey to give him a chance to have his heart readjusted and to see the world through his lenses, through God's lenses, instead of asking God to always see it Jonah's way. I think, friends, that if there was ever a message that was important for our church and for the church at large, this is it. So God has a mission in this world. He doesn't just have truth. He has a mission. And he takes the truth and he takes the grace to accomplish his mission. There are churches I know all over this world who love God's truth. But it seems like they've forgotten that the truth is a part of the mission. And I know churches all over this world that seem to love God's love. But they've forgotten that the love is about the mission. And what is the mission? The mission is making sure that more and more people know and experience the character of God. They come to know him personally. So that the truth God gives us contained in his word should be studied. It should be known and memorized. It should be learned and explored to the depth, but never simply for the sake of knowledge. The Bible says that knowledge puffs up, puffs us up. And what keeps the knowledge in check when the knowledge we get becomes a part of our missional imperative? When it becomes a part of us understanding that God gives us his truth and his wisdom and his way, reveals his character in the scriptures, gave us his word, gives us the church in prayer for our own benefit, of course, but not just for us, so that we can go out and explain to other people this great God in hopes that they will turn and repent just like the Ninevites. And when we keep the mission in front, everything else keeps its right perspective. When we instead put the truth in front, sometimes we can be speaking truthful words like Jonah was. You're great. You're compassionate. And yet we miss the whole point. And conversely, sometimes when we want to push the grace envelope, that we don't keep in front of us that it's not simply about forgiving, but it's about getting people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus, the church loses its momentum. It loses its energy. It ceases to be the church that God called and said, when you do your thing that I called you to do to spread this message, the very gates of hell will not be able to stop you. That's true corporately, by the way. But it's not just true corporately. It's true for individuals in this room. Some of you, your relationship with Jesus is stale, not because you don't know truth. You know truth. Oh, you know more truth than anybody else in this room, and you're glad to remind us of that. But you don't have a heart that beats for the mission of Jesus in this world. And your relationship is stale. And when you speak the truth, instead of turning people's hearts towards God, it builds walls. This is why churches get off course. Paul said in the New Testament over and over again, you can trace his two lines of thought. There are two primary concerns he has when he wrote his epistles to the churches that existed in that day. Keep truth pure. It's very important to Jesus. It's very important to Paul. It's very important to church leadership. Can't have church without truth being pure. But also maintain great unity. Truth and unity. Too big. Now what for what purpose though? See, some people will focus on the truth. Some people focus on the unity, focus on the grace. But the purpose is for the church to be the church. For us to experience the change, but for others to experience the change, even as God is transforming us. And when that gets lost, when that gets missing, churches begin to flounder. People begin to argue amongst themselves. And we elevate things that don't have eternal importance. And we forget what really does. You know what has eternal purpose and importance to God? People do. Because God created us in his image. 
He loved us so much he sent his one and only son so that we could be transformed from being lost to being found, from being blind to being uh, people who see. And for churches to miss that, they begin to drift. And for individuals to miss that, we begin to drift. We begin to think that our agendas and our petty idols are more important than what God speaks to us. What that means is there's a thousand ways to do church, but however you want to do it, you can disagree with the way we do it, and that's fine. I'm not even going to waste my time debating it with you on the methodology. But if at the end of the day it isn't about Jesus and it isn't about his mission in this world, you are Jonah, and God would like to correct your heart, and he'd like to correct mine as well. Now, the reason we're talking about this today isn't just to keep our church moving in the right direction. It's because the journey of life that each of us are on is this. God is trying to develop us. He's working with us. He's sending things into our lives like storms, like fish, like a vomiting fish, like messages to keep our hearts centered in the right place with him. So in verse 3 of chapter 4, Jonah says, Now, Lord, because you've done this great, terrible thing, like forgiving the Ninevites, now take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. He basically says, I got up, I read the obituary, and I wasn't in it, and I'm mad. I'm hot. I'm ridiculously hot. I'm on fire. I'm angry. I'm livid. But the Lord replied, now listen to these words, Have you any right to be angry? And they get into this debate, kind of like an old married couple. And Jonah is going to get so frustrated, he's going to go away and stew. In verse 5, it says that Jonah went out and he sat down at a place east of the city, further away from home. And he made himself a shelter and he sat in its shade and he waited to see what would happen to the city. Basically, I'm going to go sit outside and this God is unstable. He can't be fully trusted. Maybe he'll relent and actually destroy these people, rain down fire. It'll be a virtual Sodom and Gomorrah up in here is what he was hoping. I'm going to wait 39 days to see what he's going to do. We all have people that we're done with. We all have parts of our life that we're exhausted by. And this causes Jonah to go sit in isolation and in bitterness. He knows the truth of God. You're slow in anger. You're compassionate. You rain out mercy. Just don't do that here, God. See, knowing isn't the issue. It's following. Knowing isn't the issue. It's the transformation that comes when we let the truth of God penetrate our hearts. It's not enough to know the word, but to be transformed by the word. There are all kinds of debates. I shared this with my Wednesday night Old Testament class about which Bible version you should read, which is the more pure and correct and all that. Let me tell you which is the best Bible version to read. It's the one you read and you hear God speak to you in it, and then you follow him because he spoke to you. That's the best version to read. It really is. So if that's the good old King James, that's awesome. Thee and thou, please get about God's final business. All right, that's what you're supposed to do. And I've got an ESV here, and every 20-something in the room knows that it's the best version. And then I've got an NIV, so if you're 30 or 40, that's the best one. And those of you that are liberal, of course, it's the message. It doesn't really matter, though, friends. Here's what matters. When you read God's Word, do you have an open heart to receive it? Will you let Him change you? Will you walk in obedience? Or will you set up your own little idols and your own preferences and your own concerns, and in so doing, get so concerned about those things that the mission of Jesus doesn't impact your heart? That the, the very character of God somehow is known by you, but not experienced by you and not lived through you. Verse 6, then the Lord God provided a vine and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And for the first time in the book, and Jonah was very happy about the vine. 
He's done arguing theology and justice with God. It wasn't getting him anywhere anyway. And for the first time, he's happy. Oh, he's angry. He's burning. He's, he's like an Irishman. He's either asleep or angry. But this time, he's happy because God gives him a little comfort. And this is where God, like to, God would like to speak to the American church. See, God gives us all kinds of good things to bless us with. Vines, in Jonah's case. All kinds of unbelievably nice things as well. But they're not the point. Jonah's going to learn this in verse 7. Here's what it says. But at dawn, just one day of the shading vine, God provided a worm which chewed the vine so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided there again. God is behind all of this. A scorching east wind. And the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he said, of course, because he's a junior high girl, let me die. He's a drama queen. It'd be better for me to die. If you're in junior high and you're a female, I'm sorry. Just a little truth-telling here up in four corners. All right. It'd be better for me to die than to live. Jonah says, I'm not going to get up. God, I had a plan and you didn't follow it. I prayed. You didn't do what I expected you to do. I pressed the right buttons. I did all that I was, thought I was, and you didn't do. God, you're messing with me. See, Jonah takes himself very seriously, but God's teaching him. God's saying to him, look, don't be an idiot here. I'm the one on the throne, not you. Jonah, you can't tell me what to do. And Jonah's response is, just kill me, God. Just take me away. Christians today say, God, just, just come back, Lord, and end all this mess. Just rapture me away. In verse 9, God said to Jonah, do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I'm angry enough to die. Now, do you make the vines? Do you cause them to grow? Are you nuts? Now, listen, the Bible says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the place where knowledge begins. Jonah has missed this. He has ideas, and God's ideas don't seem to measure up with his. And God says, I am quick to mercy. And Jonah says, but you needed to kill the Ninevites. They rape, they pillage, they do witchcraft, they peddle in evil. And God says to him, well, why are you angry when they turn away from that and turn back to me? The Ninevites repented, uh, and they weren't stubborn. Here you are, Jonah, you're stubborn. You're just justifying your bitterness. You're hiding behind truth. You're hiding behind your own whim. And you've elevated idols. And when you've done that, you yourself are ceasing to experience the grace that I so lavishly want to pour out upon you. Jonah's now writing this so we can see it. I think the saving grace of this story is, is that Jonah is the one telling it. If I were writing my story, it would sound very different. I'd take a lot of stuff out of the story if I were Jonah. I'd hide that whole thing about going to Tarshish. I'd really focus on the powerful preaching I could do in five words to change people's lives. And I'd probably forget all the stuff that happened afterwards. I'd just elevate the good stuff. But Jonah is giving his testimony here and how God has worked in him. And in verse 10, God says, you've been concerned about the vine, though you didn't tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and it died overnight. God provides, by the way, some things in our lives like plants like other blessings, and we can get consumed with them. We get consumed sometimes with our homes, our home repair projects. I know that's me. I, I, I can get consumed with cars and big screen TVs. There was a time in my life when I could get consumed with girlfriends, fantasy football teams, my golf handicap, which isn't very good, by the way. Uh, I, I can be really into my money or my other toys. Some of us, are, it's our boats, it's our clothes, all this stuff God's given us for us to enjoy. But sometimes we put them in front of God. They become more important to us than what God would like to do in us and through us. And all this stuff that makes us happy, like the leafy plant did to Jonah, when it breaks, when the team loses, when the account dwindles, it makes us angry. 
And I think I understand that fully. Jonah understands it as well. But the problem is, is for some of us, this stuff isn't just something we enjoy. It's our idol. And when we embrace, embrace idols and let go of God, the real God, who wants to speak to us vibrantly and dynamic, the God who can't be put into a box, when we grab onto other things instead of him, we begin to forfeit the grace. Oh, you'll probably still go to heaven. That's not what I'm talking about. But so much more than just going to heaven, God wants to walk with us in a dynamic and free and life-changing relationship here and now. And we forget, I think, that there's a lost world outside of our hobbies and our concerns and what makes us happy and our addictions and our favorite type of singing and the way we baptize people. And at the core of it, Jesus wants to remind us he has a mission in this world. You and I are called to it. And when we are true and faithful to that and we walk that journey with him, he will transform us along the way. And where we're not, he will try to get our attention. Now, this message isn't about wayward people away from God. This is about wayward Christians who've missed the mission of Jesus and gotten concerned about everything else, primarily their own comfort and preferences. And God says, put all of that second and let me tell you what to be about. And by the way, he's already told us, be about people. Be about the message of Jesus that says anybody who will, whosoever will, can come to him and receive life. It's about creating a community so when people receive the truth of Jesus, they can experience the love of Jesus by people who've already experienced the truth of Jesus. And for people who haven't experienced the truth of Jesus and let that change their life, they can come into a community and begin to experience the love, have their hearts softened by him. See, when the church does that, the church grows. It grows deep theologically and spiritually. It grows wide numerically. That's what God's called us to. So the book ends really on a sour note, but Nineveh, has more than 100, it says in verse 11, 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left. That's a euphemism for talking about kids. You know, little kids, you ever try to get them dressed? Like want to put their pants on backwards. I got three little boys. You send them to the room to get dressed. They put on their pants backward. You have to zip up their zipper or else little hiney shows, you know. Um, they don't know what to do. They can't tell their right. That's just 120,000 kids. And listen to this phrase. And many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? God's saying to Jonah and through this story to some of us, you're more devoted to these things than you are to me. And I have people out there who spiritually can't tell their right hand from their left hand. And you're more concerned about your own agenda? Lay it down. It's an idol to you. And he wasn't just concerned about the people. He was concerned about cows. Now, if you're a vegetarian in the room, this is a direct opposition to you. This verse says basically you're going to hell. God likes cows. He knows that cows are made by steaks. That's kind of what, what's there. And so basically God's saying to Jonah, do you want me to like smoke the daycares and roast the animals? No, listen, I have great concern for this city. So here I am, Ben, at Four Corners, and I'm reminded that God has great concern for our city. I don't know exactly how many people we have they can't tell they're right from left, but I know there are a bunch of children in this area and high schoolers and middle schoolers. And I think that God would like to leverage more of what those of us that are following with him have our resources, our intellect, our skill, our passion, and our time. And he'd like to break some idols so that the mission of Jesus becomes more clear. That's been my prayer as I focused on this book. Oh, it's a great story about a guy getting swallowed by a fish. But it's really the story about a wayward follower of Jesus who has propped up everything else other than the mission of Jesus. And let that drive them. And in the experience of walking out the mission of Jesus, being transformed by the renewing of, the, of our minds, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you want to know how to grow deep in Jesus? Get serious about his mission. You want to stall out? You want to get frustrated and become cynical and critical? You want to have people who really are hoping you won't open your mouth and speak at all about the things of God in your life? You want to be like that kind of person? 
We'll just elevate everything else other than the mission of Jesus. Elevate truth, talk about grace, talk about justice, talk about whatever. But at the end of the day, if you don't get busy about the mission, it will stall you. I don't want that for you. I love you. I'm not going to allow that for our church. Not simply because Jonah tells us that, but the entire witness of the Bible is that Jesus Christ came to this world so that people who know him can extend him to other people. He chose to do it that way. I'm quite hot about it. And the thing I'm so excited about today for you to be here is you get to see people who've experienced that. They're going to be baptized in a few minutes. And their testimony, their story, it's as varied as there are individuals. It's different than Jonah's, but it's the same. It's a God who didn't give up. While they were running away, he ran after them. And he calls us to run after them too. Now I know you got people you don't like, so do I. Some of them are in the room right now. I'm not looking at anybody right now. And God tells me to get over it. And I know I have ways I like for things to be done. And we could debate that there's a right and wrong and good and bad and effective in it. We could debate all, but at the end of the day, if we're not about the mission, God would like to call us back home to that place and let our walking with him in the mission change everything for us. Why don't you grab out your connect card and we'll take a couple next steps together as a congregation. We do this so that we don't just get stirred. We do this so that God can change us and we walk away with a bit of a game plan. Here's the first thing I'd like for you to consider next step, hey. I wonder if there's anybody in the room that would say, Ben, I need to receive God's grace and accept his forgiveness. Now, this could be for the first time. It could be the first time you ever acknowledge that you're a sinner before God. That means you're not perfect. If you can't admit that, you've got some pride issues. You're not perfect, and you need God's grace to forgive you. I've done it. Scores of people have done it. The folks that are getting baptized have done that. They've said, God, I'm not perfect. I'm a sinner. I'd like to receive your grace. Now, if you'd like to do that, whether you've, this is the first time or whether you're following Jesus or you just need a little correction, you can check that box as a sign of your faith, and we're going to pray about it in a minute. And then when the offering buckets come by later, you put this in the offering bucket, and we send you a little reminder and encouragement about that through the week. All right, here's next step B. I wonder if there's anybody that would say, Ben, I have a story of God's work in my life that I think could encourage somebody else. But maybe, maybe you would say that your story's a bit more like Jonah. It's not all clean and pretty. Hey, you know what? That's okay. None of ours is. We put on false fronts sometimes. We don't want to tell the whole story. But the truth of the matter is, is all of us have moments in our life where we ran away from God and did the wrong thing. God can use that story to encourage other people. And if that's true for you, you can check the box. We're going to send you a little information and ask you to go to our website and begin to write that down. Now, we don't need to catalog it, but we need to tell that story. God says that we're made overcomers by the blood of the lamb. That's what Jesus does. And by the word of our testimony, that's how we begin to cooperate. And that makes us overcome. Now, next step C, before they show it, before they show it, I want to talk to the ladies in this room. I was looking at our small groups catalog, and I realized we have about three to one men's small groups than we have women's small groups. Now, in this church, God's blessed us. He's given us great favor with men. I love that. Most churches in America, that's not true. What that means, ladies, if your husband or boyfriend likes coming to this church, you should do all you can to keep them here. Because we, for some reason, God's blessed us there. We have favor with that. And if they come, they'll hear the truth of God. They'll be challenged to grow. They'll get in relationships, people generally walking in the same way. That's really, really good. But I was challenged with this thought, that there's some ladies in our room who need to lead some small groups to help other people grow in their faith with Jesus. Now, if you don't think you're able to do that, I want to give you a little test. Every lady in the room, this is simple. You're not committing to anything. Would you just take your finger and kind of stick it up in the air like this? Go ahead, ladies. Trust me here. I I don't deceive you. Now, would you do this? Just kind of do this motion right here. Can you do that? Now, if you can do that, you can lead a small group. You know what this is? It's turning on your DVD player. See, if you don't know anything, we can give you resources. You can put it in the DVD player, press play, and then turn it off and read the questions at the end with the study guide. You can lead a small group. We need a bunch of you ladies to step up, carve out time. I know it's not convenient. It's about people, though. 
to step up for this next round of small groups. And you need to lead people in information about God in hopes that it'll change their lives. Here's the next step, D for us. How many people would say, Ben, I really think that God would like to show me more of what it means to have concern for our great city. He showed Jonah about his concern for the great city of Nineveh. What about the great city of Cincinnati and the northern suburbs that we live in? I think God would like to break our heart about this and let us see that there are not just 120 thousand people who can't tell the right hand from the left, but let us see those faces and get involved with those people here in this place. Let's pray about those things right now, and then we're going to do some baptisms, all right? Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your grace and your mercy. Thank you for the story of Jonah that we can laugh about a little bit at his expense. But God, thank you so much for the truth contained in there, that you're calling us back to be about your mission in this world, that we don't set the agenda you do, and we have to be about our Father's business. God, thank you so much for each soul who's getting baptized today. God, thank you for those people that are saying today, I'm a sinner, Lord. Forgive me. I receive your grace. Thank you for those ladies that are going to step up and lead. Thank you for the people whose hearts are going to break over what you want to do in our city. We commit it all to you, Father. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.